We're going to be looking at Romans 6 today, the chapter on sin in the Bible. Sin is mentioned more in Romans 6 than any other chapter of the Bible. As we prepare for the sermon this morning, uh, the ushers do have a handout. I made over 400 of these, so I hope I didn't kill trees for uh, wrong reasons. Uh, If you've got one you want to share with your spouse or whatever, that's fine. But if you need one, just slip your hand up and they can get one of these. Um, It's one of those things I I got. I I feel like the Lord led me to do this, uh, to turn it into a booklet this morning at about 7 in the morning. So we were feverishly printing and folding. And uh, I want to thank my family for helping uh, fulfill fulfill this purpose for you. Um, Hopefully I won't. Get into a pattern of doing that, but I hope it's a blessing to you uh, this week in your walk with the Lord. Uh, The sermon today in Romans chapter 6, verses uh, 12 through 14, uh, what we're going to do is we're going to work through the passage, uh, look at it in detail, study it, analyze it so we can know it, and then uh, for a good portion of time near the end of the sermon, I want to take some time to talk about how this can be practical for you as a believer in your family, uh, whatever your life station, I hope uh, some of the ways that uh, we talk about using this text and applying it in our lives uh, can be helpful as well. So one path through to understand it, and then we consider its practical uh, value and merit. Uh, In Romans chapter 6, Paul raises potential objections to his theology of grace and the gospel. Um, so that he can answer them. We know by this point in Romans that Paul's ne- ne- he never shies away from hard questions. Uh, and in Romans chapter 6 and 7, we can mark out those questions with the word, what then, or what shall we say then? So in Romans 6 and verse 1, um, he says, what shall we say then? And he, then he raises an objection to his theology of grace. He does the same in Romans 6.15, what then? And the same in Romans 7, 7, what shall we say then? Paul is raising three objections in these chapters to his understanding of grace, and he's going to answer them. So uh, last week, we began by looking at Paul and considering whether his gospel of grace means that people shall continue in sin so that grace may abound. And his simple answers are twofold. One, never, may it never be, and two, how can people dead to sin continue in it? It's that question. That is, since believers are dead to sin's rule because of being in Jesus, they should not continue in sin. They should absolutely not continue in sin. We sang that song, my sins, there are many. That should never be the desire of a believer, many sins. We should not continue in sin. We've been delivered from one realm, one ruler, over to another ruler and realm. It, the realm that we're in is grace and Jesus. Last week I entitled the sermon of Romans 6, 1 through 11, Just the Facts. We are dead to sin since rule and reign, and we are alive to God. That, those are the facts. Today, it's just the obligations. Verses 12 through 14. So it's just the facts, then just the obligations. Uh, So in our text this morning, Paul will make positive and negative demands on us in verses 12 and 13 uh, before 
offering a final reassuring promise in verse 14. Um, So this sermon will focus on those obligations that we find in our Christian life. But before we do that, let me just point out very clearly the order of these things, right? The order of these things as found in Romans 6 are very important because they they mimic the order of the Christian experience that is genuine Christianity. Romans 6 begins with the blessings of being alive to God and dead to sin as a ruler and then moves on to the obligations from those blessings. That is, genuine Christianity is unique, I think, in this order. Perhaps you've heard this before. I've grown up in the church hearing a lot of preaching. I've heard this multiple times, but I do think it's a good point to make that other religions in the world have you work for forgiveness and blessing, but genuine Christianity starts with grace, unearned favor with God through Jesus, and then gets to the obligations. Okay, and that's an important difference for you to understand. If you start with the obligations to try to get to grace, you will go to hell. If, if it starts with unearned, unmerited favor from God for you in the cross, and you believe and repent, and then you try to do Romans 6, 12 through 14, that's genuine Christianity. Genuine Christianity. It's like receiving some tremendous gift that you receive from someone else. It's unbelievable. You're taking care of, maybe for the rest of your life, such an amazing gift, however, once you get it, normally swells within us a desire to do whatever we can to show gratitude to the person who gave us the gift, the the gift giver. And so just to be clear again, Christ fought my sin battle 2,000 years ago. And that was the definitive act that rescued me from sin and its consequences. I am saved through that entirely. But now as a believer, I respond after faith and repentance by obeying the obligations that we'll see here. At least that's our desire. And so let's begin in the text. In verses 12 and 13, Paul reveals how Christians must respond to their death to sin in Jesus. And this will include two negative commands followed by two positive commands. So uh, the outline in the handout I've given to you, everything I'm going to say in the sermon that's not application will be on that front page. You can see the negative commands followed by the positive commands in verses 12 and 13. I want to read uh, these two verses for us. So look, look in your Bible at verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. So here we see the obligation. Starts with the negative ones. And the first negative command is, is found in verse 12. That's what verse 12 is about. 
Since we're dead to sin and alive to God, we must not let sin reign in our bodies. This passage, uh, Paul has already introduced sin and death as political rulers or authorities. And so he continues with that sort of description. And he says literally here, if you were to translate it literally, that we must not allow sin to act as a king over us or to lord it over us. I want to point out two things about verse 12 that I think will help us uh, understand it a little bit more. We'll go quickly through this section. First, notice where we're not to allow sin to rule. Notice where. We're not to allow sin to reign in the arena of our mortal bodies. That's the English translation we have before us. And in modern English, uh, however, I think the word mortal might not be one that we use very much. What does mortal body mean? Well, the word mortal comes from the original word that is a word used for death. And so mortal means a body that is subject to death. Because of sin, our bodies are going to die or perish. That's true for everyone here, unless the Lord returns soon. Our bodies are not incorruptible, they corrupt. They're not immortal, they are mortal. That is, the body we have now is subject to death. But secondly, notice in verse 12, uh, what to what sin would enslave us? Sin would reign over us with the result that we would obey its passions. That's what the Bible says in Romans 6.12, obey its passions. Now the word its does not refer to sin, it refers to the body's passions. And so it's not that sin personifies and slaves us to its own passions or desires, but But sin personified wants to reign over you so that you are enslaved to the passions of your own body. Where passions, of course, can be translated lusts, and these things are expounded all throughout the New Testament. These passions, these bodily lusts or desires that come from within include things like drunkenness, immoral sex, immoral fantasies, Sensuality, sorcery, strife, envy, coveting, jealousy, displays of anger, divisions, and other such things as found in your New Testament. And in the New Testament, what we find, if you're, if you're just looking for these words, passions and lust, if you're looking for these words, you'll find that these things come from within. So in Romans 1 and verse 24, they come from our own heart. Here in Romans 6, 12, they come from our bodies. Another way of Paul saying this in different texts, like Romans 13, 14, they come from our flesh. Our flesh. And so in verse 12, it's pretty simple. We've, we've seen this command before. Sin wants to control us. It wants to exercise authority over us so that we are enslaved to evil desires that come from within. But God says, do not let Sin reign in your body. Sin is a dominating, evil tyrant who seeks to control you so that you would be harmed by your own illicit desires. That's the first negative command. Secondly, verse 13, beginning of the verse. 
Paul continues with what else we must not do. He says, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. And if I'm going to make sense out of this, I really need to dig into two words. So we look into two words and we'll put it back together again as a verse. First word would be your members. What does your members refer to here? Back in verse 12, Paul spoke of our entire body, called it our mortal body that's subject to death and decay. But here with the words your members, he's dividing it down. He's breaking it down. He's looking at our parts, the parts of our physical body. Maybe you could say body parts. This speaks of more, however, than just uh, our limbs, hands, feet, stuff like that. It also speaks, I believe, very clearly of our sexual organs and of our mental and cognitive capacities. So when I see the word members here, you could translate it body body, uh, parts, but it means hands, feet, eyes, ears, tongue, but I think it also includes our minds. Okay, that's your members. The second word I want to look at is instruments. And uh, this word is a rare word, and I actually wish it would be translated differently. And if you're following along in the outline, you see how I would love to translate it. It'd be the word weapons. Weapons. Uh, this word is used in four other passages in the New Testament. Okay, and, and so um, I just want to read these to you and how the ESV normally translates it so you can see why it should be weapons. Uh, John 18, 3. Says, so Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers uh, from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Okay, so uh, that's the same word there. Romans 13 and verse 12, Paul says, The night is far gone, the day is at hand, so let them cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor. Singular, this is a word, member, the member of light, put on the armor of light. 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 7, he says, By truthful speech and the power of God with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. And then 2 Corinthians 10, 4, he says, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. All right, so having considered all these other passages, I would prefer for this, this passage in Romans 6 to be translated weapons. Okay? I love the ESV. You see, I've been using it for seven years. Don't have a, you know, a plan to go away from it at this point, but I wish they would have said weapons here. And so uh, having considered those two words, we put it back together again. We are not to offer to sin our body parts, our limbs, our organs, our capacities as weapons for unrighteousness. See, as portrayed in this passage, sin is waging a war against God and against holiness. And so what Paul is saying is we cannot... Let our body parts be used as weapons that sin shoots against God or others or ourselves. Which, by the way, your sin impacts others. I think the reality many times is sin uses some part of my physical existence to hurt my wife my children, my brothers and sisters in Christ. And so Paul says, do not let sin 
use your body parts as weapons for unrighteousness. But then we turn to the positive, okay? And I want to get through both positives before we really dig into the application here. The positive obligation with our body and body parts start in verse 13, middle of the verse. It says, offer yourselves to God. That's the first one. It says, but present yourself to God as those who've been brought from death to life. Here we learn our minds, our hearts, our organs, and limbs belong to God. So we should be continually offering our whole being to God for Him to use for His just purposes. I think one of the realities that struck me this week as I was studying this is you really have two choices and there's no in-between. Okay, you've got two rulers. You've got God or grace and then you've got sin. And so one of the things the commentaries even pointed out is there's no neutrality here. It's, it's not that, okay, I'm not going to let my body be used by either. Sin or God. It's one or the other. It uh, kind of reminded me of what John Owen, the old Puritan, said. Remember what he said about sin? He said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. All right, so as we consider sanctification, what Paul says about our bodies here, we need to understand that our bodies and body parts will either be used by sin for unrighteous purposes or they'll be used for God. But this, this first challenge, in, instead of uh, living our lives exclusively, refusing every impulse of the body or flesh, we need to engage in its positive counterparts. So refusing sin, I think, should be immediately or simultaneously followed by offering our entire self to God. That's when in verse 13, in the end of the verse, he gives the second command, and he, you could supply the word offer again or present for the end of this verse. Look at the end of verse 13, and your members to God as instruments for unrighteousness. Okay, so this is where Paul takes things further. Right before this, he says, present your entire body, but now he's like going right down to the member level again. All the limbs, all the parts, all the organs, everything. Present them specifically to God, as weapons for righteousness. Okay, so that's pretty clear. Now, having worked through these commands in verses 12 and 13, I want to consider a way that we can incorporate these obligations into our lives, and I want to take some time for application. That's what the huge chart on pages 2, 3, and 4 in your notes are, so you can flip to page 2. I want you to imagine starting your day this week by recalling what God says about the members of your body in both negative and positive ways. So I don't know where you like to have your morning devotions. Hopefully that's a practice for you. Hopefully you like to get in the Word early and you like to pray, whether it's in in bed or in a chair. But imagine yourself there, okay? And imagine that you're starting your day off by saying to God that you know your members are his. And I want you to consider this week using scriptures like these. Now, there's nothing magical about the chart that I've given to you. This chart is just what came to my mind as I was meditating on this passage, okay? There's a lot more that you could say about this, but what I did is I started at our feet the whole way, you know, from the bottom of our feet the whole way to the top of our heads. 
And I tried to pick out some of the body parts, okay, that the scripture has something to say about. They have things to say negatively, what not to do, and positively, what to do. And so perhaps this week, reviewing these things could could be used by God to strengthen you. Okay, so we start with our feet. What does God want me to do with my feet? Well, I was surprised by how many passages are about your feet in the Bible. Negatively, you've got passages like Matthew 18, 8, where Jesus says, and if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than to, with two hands and two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. Oh, Jesus was quite serious about not letting sin use our feet and our hands. Romans 13, verse 15, uh, when describing unbelievers, it says, Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery in the way of peace they have not known. Uh, consider Proverbs 4, 26, or 27, Turn your foot away from the evil. What does God want me to do with my feet? Feet are normally the way we move from place to place. I know we might have some uh, handicapped people who don't get around in that way. And if that's the case, you pray about whatever body parts God has given to you in your function for the Lord. And you surrender them to the Lord. But normally feet is uh, what lead us around to places, whether evil and sinful or good. So feet should be carrying us to good places to do God's will and to take the gospel to others. Consider those other verses I gave you there. Those were all negative things about feet, but I, I was surprised. Look at Romans ten fifteen, And how are they to preach unless they're sent? As is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Want to do something good with your feet this week? Follow them to a gospel opportunity and share the good news of Jesus Christ. Acts 26, 16, but raise and stand on your feet, Paul. I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen uh, me and to those in which I appear to you. Or Ephesians 6, verse 15, and as shoes for your feet, put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. You see, we not only should avoid certain things with our feet and shouldn't go certain places, but we can use them positively and present them as offerings to the Lord. See what I'm doing here? Maybe it only makes sense in my madness. What about your hands? Does the Bible say anything about hands? Acts 2.23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. 1 Timothy 1, verses 8 and 9, the law is not laid down for the just, but for, and there's a long list of things here, but one of those people it's laid down is for those who strike their fathers and mothers. You see, hands can be used sinfully to strike or kill, or as we're going to see in another passage soon, or steal. We can use our hands to do that, to abuse someone else physically, to kill someone, to steal. Instead, use them positively. Look at some of the verses. First uh, Corinthians 4.12. I don't know if you have this exact one in your notes. It says, and we labor working with our own hands. That's what Paul, the apostle says. He used his hands positively. 
I think you do have 1 Thessalonians 4, 10 through 12. But we urge you, brothers, do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. That's one good thing we can do with our hands. Work so that we are dependent on no one. 2 Thessalonians 3, 10 and 11, for even when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, but busy, uh, not busy at work, but busy buddies. Or consider Ephesians 4, 28. This verse just stuck out to me this week. Ephesians 4, 28. I, I, I know the end of the chapter is a lot about our speech, but th- this verse, I, I, I saw it there before. It talks about our hands. It says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So this week, as you're starting your day with the Lord, say, God, I offer up to you my hands. You've already purchased them with the blood of Jesus Christ. I don't want to use these hands to strike someone. I don't want to use these hands to kill someone. I don't want to use these hands to steal. Instead, I want to use these hands to work so that my needs are provided for and we are in a place where we can share with others. Those are our hands. What about our eyes? Does God say anything about eyes in the Bible? Are you still with me, by the way? This is application. Does God have anything to say about our eyes as members of our body in the Bible? Well, of course he does. Matthew 8, 28 and 29, but I say to you that everyone who looks on a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it's better that you lose one of your members. Same word. Then your whole body be thrown into hell. Jesus is really confronting, I think, unbelievers. And he's showing them, you can't do this on your own. You need something. You need grace. So negatively, I'm not to offer my eyes to sin, to lust, because Jesus says that's equivalent to adultery and immorality. Positively, though, what can we do with our eyes? John 4.35, do not say that there are yet four months, then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see the fields are white for harvest. What's that verse about? Sharing the gospel and seeing the needs all around us. You know, there are bad things we can do with our eyes. Looking in lust at that page on our computer or on our phone. But there are good things we can do with our eyes too. Look around at the fields. They're white and are ready to harvest. Don't delay. 2 Corinthians 4.18 And we look not at the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Psalm 8, 3 and 4, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers. So instead of offering our eyes to sin, to lust this week, instead we must look around at others who are in need of the gospel, look to the reality of the future that we have in heaven, look around at God's beautiful creation and offer up worship to him. What about the tongue? Bible say anything about the tongue? Some of you are like, man, you already nailed all the big sins, right? 
yeah, yeah. You, you, you talked a little bit about lust. You could talk a little bit more about that. That's the one we really need to go after as a church, right? That's in our culture. You know, that's go after immorality, go after adultery. Like those are the big sins. You know what James says, the brother of Jesus, about which body member could be the most difficult to control? The tongue. James 3, 5 through 8, the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. As I go to the Lord, I'm talking about my body parts. This is like one I really need to talk about as well. You know what has potentially maybe more likelihood to damage and destroy our church than any other of the body parts? It'd be the tongue. It sets things on fire. Ephesians 4.29, let no corrupt talk come out of your mouths. It's what not to do with your tongue, but how about good things? Ephesians 4.29b, but only such is good for the building up. That's the sort of talk. Only the things are such as good for building up as fits the occasion that may give grace to those who hear. Or what else can we do good with our tongue instead of corrupting with deceit or lying or gossip or slander or something. How about Hebrews thirteen fifteen? Through him let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. So what do we learn about the tongue here? What can we do with the tongue this week? The tongue is impossible to control for sinful human beings in their own strength. It's a small but significant member. And so these texts say we must not offer our tongues as weapons for corrupt speech, for deceiving, slandering, and gossiping. Instead, we should use our tongues for God to edify others, minister grace to them, and glorify and worship God. You want to do something positive with your tongue this week? Offer up praise to the Lord. Worship Him. Well, I won't get through the rest. As I drew it up this morning at 7 in the morning, I thought I'd go through all of them. But you can look at the ears and the brain. But imagine taking this list this week on your bed or in your chair in the morning and saying to God, say this, God, I am not my own. You bought my entire body and my soul with Jesus' blood. I commit today to use my body and its parts for your glory. And not surrender it to sin. Help me through the Spirit to live for you today. Do this before temptation ever hits you. Do this as soon as your heart starts to feel the allure of the temptation. And do this when temptation is strong. Fight sin through the strength that God provides for the Spirit. Perhaps going through a list like this has been discouraging to you. I'm sure it has been to some of you, and you think that you've lived for far too long enslaved to sin. Even this past week, perhaps using your body parts and capacities as weapons for unrighteousness. May Peter's clear admonition resonate with you. 
You could write down 1 Peter 4, 2, and 3, and I'll read it to you. Peter said, Live for the rest of your time in the flesh no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time past is sufficient for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless um, idolatries. You see, grace has obligations. We must use our members as weapons only for righteousness. Now, to this he attaches in verse 14 a promise. And I'm just going to go through this very quickly. And it's an it's a explanation. It's a, it's a reason. Okay? But look at verse 14. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Here, uh, Paul gives a promise. I believe it's an explanation, but I think it's also a promise that we will no longer be lorded over by sin. This does not mean that we will no longer sin. In fact, if someone tells you they don't sin, I think they're either very greatly deceived or they're not a believer. According to 1 John, people who say they have no sin are deceiving themselves and the truth is not in them. But this is a promise. It's a promise and a declaration that sin is not Lord over you. And it will not have lordship over you because you are under a different lord if you know Christ. Now Paul actually closes this verse in a different way by saying uh, that sin will not domineer or reign over us because we are not under the law but under grace. And uh, for that, we're going to have to look ahead. Okay, That's going to be a major theme of Romans 7 and 8. Okay, but this is a, a reason why we are to be presenting our bodies to God, not to sin. Because sin is not lording over us because we're not under law. Uh, what I'll say uh, just here initially is the law did not offer people power to battle their own sin. It just told them what to do. Maybe offered some incentives, blessings if you obey, curses if you disobey. The law of Moses told us what to do, but it did not give us any internal power to fight it. And that's why grace and the gospel is so much better. As we close today, let's ask God this week to help us fulfill the obligations that spring from grace. We are dead to sin. We are alive to God. May God help us every day, every morning, this week, to present ourselves and our body parts as weapons to God for righteousness. Let's pray together. Uh, Father, perhaps some of us uh, have been casual or 
have let the guard down when it comes to the parts of our body. May we remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6 that he says, you are not your own for you were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body because it's His. Lord, help my brothers and sisters this week as they do battle against sin. The tyrant sin so easily controls us. I pray that this week would be a week where we take the Scriptures and we make it very practical. In our devotional time, we, we look to see what does the Bible say about my members? What I should and shouldn't do with them. I pray that we would perhaps do this with our children, with our friends, other brothers and sisters. What does, the, what does the Bible say about these things? And then, Lord, we know that if, if we were to fight this in our own strength without your Spirit, we would be utterly lost. We have no help. So, Lord, I pray that as we determine as brothers and sisters to offer up our bodies and our <clears throat> body capacities to you every day that you would enable us through your spirit to say no to sin, to fight sin this week. Lord, help our body parts not be weapons that sin shoots against our friends, shoots against our spouse this week, discourage them or hurt them. Lord, may Satan not have that victory over us. Lord, we pray that you would give strength to the weak here today. Perhaps there's a brother or sister who's just enslaved in some area. I just, Lord, I just pray that you would give them wisdom and grace and strength to break free. Lord, we'll never be sinless in this world, but we can grow and we can say no to sin as a Lord. So give them strength this week. Give them friends to surround them. Give them your spirit's enablement. I pray that we could rejoice in some victories this week. We thank you for all this, Lord. We're so glad that we have a Lord who's benevolent and gracious and kind. Thank you that our sin was dealt with definitively at the cross. Now give us grace to fulfill the obligations that spring from grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.